take everything to the next level. When it comes to doing sales and negotiation and really trying to get deals done, we often are just minimizing things instead of maximizing. So let's take as much time. Treat it like you can make 30 or 40K on this deal if you renovate it. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com, and in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of the fluffy stuff. We hate that fluffy stuff, so we don't get into it. With us today, Michael Green. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for inviting me on, man. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and it's my pleasure. A little bit about Michael. He has been investing in real estate for the last 10 years. He has flipped over 1,100 homes in that time based in Baltimore, Maryland, which I was commenting to him prior to recording. I really enjoyed visiting Baltimore a year or so ago. Not enough good things get said about Baltimore. Just a great town. So with that being said, Michael, you want to give the best of our listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Absolutely. So I've been investing, like Joe said, for 10 years in real estate. I got started in 2009, started in there. So I'm an analytical guy. So I read books for six years before I made my first offer. It's just the way I am. I like to read, study. It wasn't until I was playing poker with a friend and he was telling him how I want to invest in real estate and do the stuff that he was like, well, let's just do it. Obviously for him, like seven seconds in, he's ready to flip a house. I'm six years in and I can't even make a choice. And he's like, let's do it. And then I gave him about a hundred reasons not to. He actually started to just start seeing houses. He was like, I'm doing it with or without you. And eventually I started to get some FOMO. So I'm like, all right, I'll do it with you. And he was the reason I did my first house. I'm very thankful, obviously awful business partner because he didn't think through things and all that, (laughs) but so much gratitude, so much love for him because without him, I might still be reading books and waiting to make my first offer. So I got started about 10 years ago. Went really well, surprisingly. Our first house was hard, but it took us like four months. But because of the six years of studying, I think I was pretty well prepared for it. I made some good choices, still made money, about $30,000 dollars on my first deal, split it with him. He was really happy. And then uh, we went on to do a bunch of deals after that. So to this date, I've done about 1100 deals. The, the spread for me is a, the, kind of the separation is I've done about 800 flips. I have fix and flips and a bunch of wholesale deals too. I like to balance everything out when deals come in. I want to make sure that if the deal fits really well, then I'll keep it as a rehab. If it doesn't, I'll usually wholesale it off. Just mm-hmm. timing, money, manpower. Yep. What were you doing over those six years? 
I was a hardwood floor installer. So that's how I got into it. Everyone says, well, you're a contractor. So this was easy for you. I was like, well, I know how to do the hardwood. There's like 50 other items that you have to do. <laughs> so yes, the hardwood was very easy for me, but nothing else was. I didn't know anything about construction other than how to put a hardwood floor in. That was it. So yep, that's what I was doing. And I hated it, by the way. And I got in trouble as a kid, didn't graduate high school. I didn't have very many options. So when my stepfather was willing to teach me how to do hardwood. It was the biggest gift I could ever have as a kid who really didn't have a lot of prospects, what well, didn't have an MBA, no college degree. So I ended up making pretty good money. Obviously, he's making well over 100K a year as a high school dropout. Wow. I was impressed with myself. Now, the problem was I was making about 100K a year and spending about 120. <laughs> the American dream, right? <laughs> and you said you were studying over those six years. What did you study? Well, back then we didn't have YouTube, podcasts, all the stuff 10 years ago so wasn't really 2000, out. 2003 to 2009, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. You got it right. So it was books, like some random books by random people. And it was some online stuff. We had online, but it wasn't like the day where you can just, there's a million people teaching so much amazing stuff. Getting access to that stuff was near impossible. As I started to put it out into the world, when I decided to do this flip, I actually was out doing some hardwood for a guy who was actually a flipper, and he invited me to a free seminar, which is very common now, but there was like one in the country going on back then. <laughs> and this guy said, hey, man, you're making all these mistakes. And he was 100% right. He'd been doing it 30 years, and I ended up paying him 15 grand to coach me, and that was my first coach. What From were the that mistakes? I didn't know anything. I was just making offers. I didn't know the numbers. My numbers made no sense, obviously. So he started to teach me the numbers. He started to teach me how to go direct to private seller versus MLS and really how to compete, how to negotiate, just how to do everything at a much higher level. Books are really big at just giving you a vague overview. He really got me into the science of negotiating and marketing and going direct to seller, which was creating processes and systems. He was really good. He wasn't the best coach, but some of the stuff he was great at was how to find a deal and how to negotiate a deal. And I've obviously still used this stuff today. Well, let's talk about how to find a deal and how to negotiate a deal. Let's talk about the first part first, how to find a deal and go direct to a private seller. So finding a deal direct to private seller, everyone asks me like, Mike, what's your secret? I do a lot of volume every year and like, what's your favorite thing? What I've realized in the last couple of years for me has been my big takeaway and how I've really shifted my business in the last couple of years has been everything about being productive and being efficient. So right now I do about 20 deals a year on the MLS. I do 10 deals a year from wholesalers. I'm doing direct mail, which everyone's saying doesn't work anymore. It's definitely taken a downturn as far as conversion, but as far as like how many calls you get for how many letters you send out. But where we've made up for that is instead of taking and worrying about the fact that the mail is not working as well, I now am converting at double the rate that I was converting before. So three years ago, one in 22 calls, I would get a deal. Now I'm like one in eight to one in 10 on things are really good, one in eight, one in 10. And what I do differently is I'll spend about two hours on an appointment where before, because I had so much volume, I would only spend 30, 40 minutes. It was all about getting in, getting out. Now it's about building rapport, really taking it to that next level. So really everything works. It's hard for me to say, hey, Joe, this is my secret weapon. This is my thing. But if you really take everything we've always done and you think of it at a higher level and you realize that you can actually do everything that you've done before, but just take it one or two steps above, really roll out the red carpet, treat sellers with a high level of respect, build rapport with them, actually come from a place of gratitude and giving back to them and service. It's really been my secret weapon. Up. And my new sales technique is I don't sell anymore. No more closing. I literally am just super transparent and people are really loving it right now because I think they've been indoctrinated with all the car salesy stuff over the years. Mm -hmm. 
Let's talk about that. You said you're converting at a rate double as what you're converting before, and it's because you're spending about double the amount of time per appointment building that rapport, having the giving back mentality. So talk to us about what a typical meeting was like when you were doing well, but you were spending 40 minutes, and then we'll talk about the two-hour meeting. When I would do 40 minutes, the market, obviously five years ago, the market was amazing for us. It was so easy to get deals. We were totally in a buyer's market. Then now we're in a seller's market. So back then people were very distressed. So you could just be a jerk and get deals. It wasn't really an indication of you doing a great job if you went out and got deals because people were so motivated. Now they're not as motivated. They know they have options. They're certainly in power. So now they'll pick you based on whether they like you and want to do business with you. I doubt you are being a jerk. So tell us just high level, will you walk through the 40 minute meeting first? Like you arrive, you knock on the door, what next? Or maybe we should start a little bit before that. You tell me. Basically the 40 minute, we'd quick call, like get basic information, what conditions in the house and everything you've heard, you're learning. We were doing back then. We learned from like fortune builders and all the different gurus taught us to do that. It worked really well. It worked enough for us to do a lot of houses, but we would really cut things short. If they wanted to talk about their grandkids and pictures and all that, I'm a very impatient person. So I'd be <laughs> like, all right, I would always circle things back and be like, all right, let's get down to business. And that worked really well back then. Now uh-huh. I can spend two hours and legitimately 10 or 15 minutes will be about business and the rest will be about personal stuff. I'm actually encouraging them to talk about personal stuff. I want them to like me so much that if I can't buy the deal because I have a higher offer, I'll be very honest and tell them to take the higher offer, but I want them to be sad that they're not working with me. And that's my different approach today. And it's what I've had to do in order to combat how competitive it is. And it feels better, by the way. I feel like I'm coming from such a better place these days than I was back then. What questions do you ask them to generate the type of feelings of, I want them to be sad if they don't work with me? A lot of it's building rapport and just showing true empathy. When you think when you're really honest and transparent with people, it's going to gain a lot of rapport. And questions I'll ask is, tell me what's important to you about this deal or what are you trying to accomplish? How long have you lived here? When I get into those, those questions are my starters. But instead of when they give me the answer, just stopping there, I'm using questions like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Well, I've never heard that before. How did, what made you do this? It's just these really extenders to the questions. So it's literally like this rabbit trail that we can go down. We start with a question you've probably heard and many people are using, but it's really what I do after the question when I'm going and taking them from that question. We'll go from, tell me what's important to you about selling the house. And they'd be like, okay, this, this, and the standard stuff you hear. And they might just say one little thing. It's important so I could spend more time with my grandson. Oh, your grandson, how old is he? Oh, what's important? What do you love to do with them? Oh, I love baseball. Baseball, really? I played baseball when I was a kid. Where's he at now? What positions he play? And from there, next thing you know, we're talking about politics, religion, who <laughs> knows? I mean, all the stuff we shouldn't talk about, but I take a very neutral position, easy to get along with. And right. uh, man, we're just like the best of friends at some point because it starts from there, but it's about being willing to just let it go anywhere at once. And I, I used to hate this, by the way. I was totally against this because I had a partner at the time and he was that guy. He was the guy who wouldn't close the deal, but we would get invited to a cookout. (laughs) So he was, he was just so awesome. And when I look back at it, the perfect version of a real estate investor is half him, half me. I got to the point, he just built rapport. They hugged him at the end. Now I'm getting the hugs, but I can get the business. And I know when it's time to get the business, but it's often well after we've really gotten in some deeper personal stuff. And I think it's meaningful to them because a lot of my competitors are coming in like, hey, don't waste any time. It's very surface, very superficial conversation. Ours is very deep and very personal. 
Well, I'm really glad you mentioned the former partner where you wouldn't get the clothes, but he would get <laughs> he'd get invited to the cookout. I love that. And you just mentioned that you got the rapport built. Now you know also how to make sure it connects back to business. So that can be a tough transition. Clearly it was for one person that you know. What are some tips for how to transition into the business side of things and make sure that you are getting invited to the cookout in order to sign the contract to close. I love that. It's free burgers and a signed contract. That's amazing. <laughs> so a lot Almost of the tricks for amazing as free burgers and free property. That's how you'd really know you built rapport. Yeah, that would be the ultimate. That's the ultimate peak. So look, I let them choose. I'm very regimented. So I like, okay, at this point, we'll do this and that. And I've really let loose of that because I believe that's been my downfall in the past. And what's really taken away from my ability to do this at a high level. So if they want to talk for two hours about family, at some point, obviously we'll have to stop, but I can tell when they're starting to get winded. And I'll say, well, man, it's been great talking with you, Joe. You're, mm -hmm. you're really awesome to get along with. And just, we have a lot in common. And I really want to do this deal with you. Let's talk a little bit about the numbers. Let's talk a little bit about business. Because I really would love to do this for you and help you out and get this deal done and get you the money your family wants. By that point, I know everything that's important to them. So I can really just list the benefits of what they want and how I can help. And I kind of went from telling to when I would just be like, here's what we do. Here's how long we've been in business. To just really repeating now what they're into and what they want and nothing more. Because mm -hmm. it's really all they care about, by the way. So now let's talk about what you said earlier, the science of negotiating and marketing. So you've built rapport with them. You know they're selling because they want to spend time with Junior who is playing baseball and they want to play catch with Junior all the time and be closer to him. And they have certain terms that would not work for you to do the deal. How do you approach negotiating? So for me, it used to be, I would tell them what the market values were and I'd say, okay, here's what things are. I'd kind of do the math for them essentially and they would hear it and it would work sometimes. What I'm doing very differently now is I went from telling to showing. So instead of telling them, I'll literally say, well, let's talk about the numbers a little bit and let's look at some properties. You know the neighborhood, Joe. I'd love to get a little bit of feedback on what your beliefs are, the values and how these are comparable to you. So I started like, hey, 123 Main Street, are you familiar with that property? And they'll literally say, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Is that one pretty similar to yours? And they'll be like, yep, yeah, that one's just like mine. I was like, great, well, that's sold for about 110. And I'm showing them as is comps because essentially they want to just, most people just want to know they got a fair deal. When they give you a number, it's just really not based on any factual thing. It's tax assessments, what a friend told them. It's no real facts there, but they don't want to take and go from that belief to another belief without facts and proof. So I now get them engaged and I really work on getting buy-in from them. So buy-in and a couple things that are really important. Number one is buy-in on what the as-is value of the property is based on other properties that are similar to theirs. And I show them the properties, I get their feedback and I really lead them to telling me, yeah, that's just like mine. Wow. That only went for 110. I thought that would have been more. And then I show them two more. More. Now I have the buy-in and I'll ask them at the end before we move on, is there anything different about that or, is, or do those houses seem pretty consistent with yours as far as the value and condition and everything? They're like, yeah, man, that's pretty consistent. Then we got buy-in on what we would call the as-is value. The next thing is I show them the renovation costs because I want to be transparent, show them what I'm going to put into it. And I show 
them here. Look, here's my cost. Here's what I'm doing. Do you agree with about 50K sound about right to you? They say, yes, we move on. If they say no, I literally have a line item budget where I can start walking them through and then saying, okay, let's walk through this a little bit and just give me some feedback on what I might be overdoing or just not doing correctly. And by the time I walk them through the list, they're usually completely bought in because most of the time, the reason they thought it was 30 instead of 50K is they just weren't considering a lot of things that were going to be done. This happens to a lot of renovators too, including me, by the way, are just not detailed enough and we miss a lot of things. So once I get buy-in on that, on say the, what the house is worth and how much I'm going to put into it, I literally have a computer. I pull a deal analyzer out, the standard one. We all have our own deal analyzer, a little tool that works. And I just show them the math and I'm like, look, I'm making money. Obviously, you know, I'm here. I'm not going to try to hide that. I don't make a lot. I make a small amount because I do a lot of volume and here's what I'm making, by the way. And if you were doing an investment like this, Joe, you'd want to make about that, wouldn't you? And I get a hundred percent yes on that every single mm-hmm. time. So now I've gotten buy-in that it's okay for me to make money. So at this point, it's really been working well. Now this is a process by the way, but when I do this a hundred percent, I won't get yeses every time because that's impossible. No one can create that. But what I get is I get a lot more people who are bought in and even if it's a no and they just need more and just for whatever reason, they're just not going to take this now. I always always get to, Hey, I see the numbers. I really appreciate you sharing those with me. We just need more. And now we can start a dialogue around numbers, math, and how I might be able to help. If they're at 130 and I'm at hundred, it might be, Hey, well, listen, if you really need 130, I'd be willing to put it under contract and present it to my investors and see if I can find one willing to pay 130. This is usually how I back into a wholesale, but it's very transparent and honest. It's not, Hey, I'm going to buy it and then lie to them and come back later and fight with them. And this way I'm leaving the door open to come back later and have a conversation. So they're usually very willing to do that as long as they get their 130. And then 30 days later, if I couldn't find someone to buy it for that number, because there's a lot of people that have different investment criteria than me. Mm -hmm. So I might find someone willing to pay 135 for it. If I do, I'm just going to sell it and make 5k, call it a day. Did a great service for them, got them a great number, makes me feel good. Great way of doing business in my opinion. If, however, everyone's coming in at 110, I can't get anyone above the number or close to their number, I've left the door open to come back and have a conversation. Hey, I got all my investors through. Here's where they're coming up with. 30 days later, it's usually a very different story because now they know that I've went out and worked hard for them, that I've put a lot of effort in getting that number for them, and it just isn't going to happen. So this is what I call staying in the inner circle because a lot of times we make offers, it doesn't work out. We just send them out to the world. You know a wholesaler is going to put them under contract or an agent's going to list it for them. My belief is stay in the inner circle with them. So that way, if 30 days later, they are going to take a little bit less. I want to be the guy there. So it does require a little bit more work, but I get a lot of deals done because of it. And how do you stay in the inner circle? I say in the inner circle by either getting it for the price that makes sense for me or tying it up for a price that's higher, but being very upfront and honest that I'm only going to be presenting it to investors to see if I can get them that higher number. And they're usually more than willing to do that because it's no cost to them. There's no risk to them. It literally is just me going out and seeing if I can get another investor to pay more. Mm -hmm. You go into the conversation very prepared then. Yes. And the conversation you just mentioned and educate me on if it's one conversation or many. First off, is it one conversation or is it usually many conversations? We're getting into a lot of like deep stuff, obviously, yeah. So I'm talking about when you present to them the comps and the renovation costs and you show them the math, that part. Is that a phone call or is that multiple conversations, phone calls in, in, in person? So two ways to decide that. I have a way of rating the prospect. If the prospect is anywhere from one star to five stars, if they're four or five star prospects, they usually have a sense of urgency. So if they have a sense of urgency, I'm going to go there prepared to present to them and try to close the deal. 
We'll usually book three hours for that appointment. I'll come there prepared with comps, come there prepared with a renovation budget that I can do on my computer right in front of them and a deal analyzer I can pop up and I can do it all in real time right there. 10 minutes or so I can run these numbers. And I come there prepared to do business because I know if I don't, someone else might get them under contract because they're highly motivated. They're a one to three star prospect and the timing would be incorrect to present to them. They might need a few weeks to make a decision. Then I would intentionally stall it out a little bit before I presented the numbers to them. So I would break it into a two-part series where I go and build rapport, spend time, look at the house, and then schedule a second appointment. And I would be very slow about it if I knew it needed to be slow. But hey, how about we talk a seven to 10 day? You need about two weeks anyhow to get this and this together. We can meet then. I'll present all the numbers to you and make you an offer. And I'm doing that intentionally because I don't want to present now. And then they just sit on the offer for two weeks and then give the whole world an opportunity to just kind of one-up my offer and potentially lose that offer. So that's usually how I do it. It's depending on how hot the prospect is. Mm -hmm. Last question, then I'll ask you the question I ask everyone on the show. How do you determine the difference between a three and a four star when you rate the person? How I rate people is if somebody is willing to talk to me on the phone and share information, that's a star. If somebody is willing to be friendly and conversational, that's a star for me. If they're selling their house in the next 30 to 90 days, that's a star. It's a really, really big star, by the way. If they know what they want is pretty big to me, meaning they know they're going to sell their house 100%. There's no plan B. We're not going to potentially stay if we can't get a number. I'm, I'm selling this house. I just want to get the best number for it. And then the last piece is if I know that they need me and they would like me to help them. So if they're really like, Mike, yeah, we'd love to have an offer from you. If all five of those things happen, that's a five star. You start taking a couple of those things off and only got two or three out of five, then that's a three star. When we start to get to four out of five, though, you really have a hot prospect, someone who's really checking a lot of the boxes. I generally just try to get in front of those people. I don't qualify them like crazy on the phone. If they're only hitting about one or two stars, I dig deeper and I try to get those stars up. If somehow they don't get up, then that's going to be a really bad use of my time to spend three hours with that person. What's your best real estate investing advice ever? Best advice ever is just take everything to the next level. When it comes to doing sales and negotiation and really trying to get deals done, we often are just minimizing things instead of maximizing. So let's take as much time. Treat it like you can make 30 or 40K on this deal if you renovate it. A lot of times we go out, we're treating it as if it's just an appointment for an hour, but it really represents the potential to make 30 to $40,000. So treat it as that. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready, man. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation podcast at thereifoundation.libson.com. Okay, best ever book you've recently read? Best ever book is Start With No, Jim Camp. I'm loving that book. I'm reading it for the second time now. It states and says that all of us are so afraid of getting rejected and getting a no that it's really important to just go ahead and start with no and allow people to qualify and come back. So it's pretty different than the way I believe, but when I was reading it, it was made a lot of sense and it's been really impactful to my business. A mistake you've made on a transaction? 
mistake I made on a transaction, probably my biggest loss I've ever taken in flipping was 55K loss. And I bought a house with well and septic and I got a very loose opinion that the well and septic was good. Come to find out it was not good. And not only did it just cost, normally it's about 20 or 30K, but we ran into a lot of problems with it. Ended up being about 50, 60K problem. So really doing more due diligence with things that are out of your control, like well and septic. What was their role for the person who you asked about it, who ended up not being right? Well, it was actually a well and septic guy and he came out and said, Hey, it's all good. And then obviously we need, it's all good. You need like 5k in repairs. So we're like, cool, 5k, no big deal. Well, we go to pull the permits and the County disagrees and says, no, no, you need to do this. And not only it's not perking. So you have to go from a normal septic system to a holding tank, which really decreases your value because somebody has to pay money to pump it out every couple months. And it's just very undesirable. So that was number one. Number two part of that was the well ended up not yielding like he thought, and we had to drill a hole for a new well. That hole didn't hit water, so we had to drill a second hole at (laughs) 7,000. Five holes total. It ended up being $28,000 later. Complete nightmare. So I now, I try not to buy well and septic because it's not needed where I'm at. But if I do, I make sure that I pull permits and everything before I settle just to make sure I know what I'm doing. (laughs) What's the best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I did was about nine months ago. I bought a house about a mile from DC. We're very close to DC and Maryland. And it was in a really rough neighborhood. I was definitely not sure about this one. Actually in the middle of the renovation, a guy just came, walked in the house and locked himself in the bathroom and started smoking crack. And my guys called me and said, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't know. Just hopefully he'll leave. If he didn't leave in like 20 minutes, call the police. He did eventually leave. And I was just completely weirded out by this house thinking like, what did we get into? Come to find out a big lesson for me was this was a very, desirable neighborhood because it was on Maryland side of DC and DC is highly expensive. This was still a very affordable place. So we ended up selling this house for 289 list price and we got about 15 offers and we got up to almost 60k over list. So it ended up being about $105,000 net profit after my hard money fees and all that. In a house where someone walked in and smoked crack in the bathroom. So who would have guessed? So yes, it was a bad neighborhood, but it was a highly desirable bad neighborhood apparently. Might have been a good luck charm. Maybe take them to all the houses to christen them before you flip them. I have a different perspective on it now for sure. <laughs> What's the best ever way you like to give back to the community? Best way I love to give back is in last year, I, I did an emotional intelligence training. It's a place called Choice Center, and it's been really big. And I like to give back to people in our industry. Everything we do is about giving back. And for me, it's been just anyone who reaches out and says they want to have lunch, they want to do a quick call with me. I literally jump on the phone. I make time every week for the last year just to talk to people that are inspiring to get into the business, struggling the business. And it's just been a lot of fun doing that. I've been very connected to the community. And it's just been a great way for me to give back. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? You can reach me at theflipfactor.net. That's my website. Well, then I will make sure that is in the show notes. Michael, thank you for being on the show and discussing with us how to find private sellers and then also how to negotiate with them and how to close more deals by building rapport, having true empathy You said at the very end of our conversation that you took a class or a course on emotional intelligence training. I'm going to look that up. You said choice center, being a good listener and then knowing how to combine that with business and how you're closing twice as many leads when you do visit with them through those techniques. And 
it's almost not giving them justice when I call them techniques because really it's just an approach. It's just how you interact with people. I feel like technique makes it sound gimmicky, which it's not. And I appreciate you sharing your process. There's very valuable information, especially for those who are doing wholesaling and fixing and flipping, but even those who are doing apartment investing and bringing in private capital to deals, then this is certainly some things to take away. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have the best ever day. We'll talk to you again soon. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation podcast at com. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com.